All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I hope you're well today. Uh, it's good to see everybody here, and I hope you had a great week. Uh, it is um, warming up, and so that's good, at least. Um, I had a good week as well, and I hope that uh, if you are a football fan, you're at least sympathetic to the Eagles. Okay, come on. Okay. All right. Come on now. Underdogs, come on. All right. And so with that, uh, with that in mind, we are um, it's not only extending the mercy of God to them, um, but hope it's extended to you as we worship today. Um, guys, what we're going to do is we're going to break right into the Word of God because um, the message that I have today uh, for you in uh, prayer was one that's pointed, that's simple, um, but hopefully will have us continue as a word of exhortation following up the time of consecration that we had at the beginning of the year. Uh, many times it's uh, tempting to uh, have a period of time of consecration like that and then move on as if it never really happened or we knew it happened, but we're just thankful it's over, right? <laughs> and so it's sort of like, but what we want to do is stay in that place just as whenever you come into um, a time of worship each Sunday morning, uh, the point isn't that you would just have a moment of connecting with God, but that you would leave this place better connected with him and your thoughts, heart, and mind set on him, that you might worship him as you go. And so in the same vein, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, in this whole theme of a new hope for the new year, uh, really just continue the theme of consecration to him and continue to talk about and discuss after we leave a time of consecration, how do we continue to live in that place so that that becomes our MO, that becomes our world, that just becomes how we relate with God. And so um, today what we're going to talk about, um, whereas last week we uh, talked about the uh, aftermath of a fast, what we're talking about uh, today is literally finishing what you start having the mentality to finish what you start or finish what God himself has begun in you. And to do that today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, one particular scripture in the Old Testament that uh, might be a little bit uh, ambiguous in terms of its meaning, but we're going to unpack it in light of the gospel. And then we're going to look at Jesus' completed work um, himself, what, how he finished the race and how he, instead, uh, instead of actually going partially through the motions and fulfilling the scripture, how he, in the fulfillment of all the scripture, actually did a completed work in our lives, okay? So we're going to get an example of how we're to finish the race, how we're to finish what we start, and then how Jesus himself exemplified that for us to follow. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. Um, God, we thank you that you give us your whole word, your whole counsel, um, to not only know who you are, but to know how to relate to you in our everyday life through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for his sinless life. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And God, we pray that today we would live in the light and the strength of that completed work in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible today, please turn with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13. Now, if you've never read the Old Testament before, what we're looking at here is a period of time in Israel's history after the judges. What we talked about last week was the period of the judges where uh, the Israelites, though they had received the law of God, uh, they had rejected God's authority in their lives. And so we're continually in a cycle of ups and downs of 
triumphs and successes and then bondage or captivity to the nations that surrounded them. And it was primarily because of the fact that the Israelites at that time, it said, had no king and they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And again, we talked about the fact that that reflected much of what our present culture lives like, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, nobody really subjecting themselves to a higher authority, which ultimately is to be God himself. And so because of that, they continually left themselves or found themselves in a cycle of bondage. But then you see in uh, starting in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, God actually appointing according to their desire a natural king, a natural born king. It started with a man named Saul. Uh, then it, he disobeyed God and uh, actually was a half a half-hearted devotion to God. And so God rejected him as king and he was followed up by a man named King David, who was a man known to be after God's own heart because God said, of him, he will do everything. He will do everything I want him to do. He's not going to be half-hearted like Saul. He's not going to piecemeal his obedience to me, but he's going to, in his heart of hearts, do everything um, that I want him to do. And so we see that uh, from David's line, King David's line, there came several other kings in a dynasty. Uh, There were kings of both Judah and Israel after the kingdom was uh, separated because of Israel's sin. And we see that God in the midst of the separation of the two northern and southern kingdoms, we see that he was continually raising up prophets, people of God who were trying to turn the Israelites in the midst of their wandering or their straying back to the law of God, back to the place where they would live in wholehearted obedience to him. That was literally the function of the prophets. We know that we see that um, in the first five books of the Bible, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, and you have the law of God, right? Then you get into the historic books where it begins to unfold God's purposes being accomplished through the Israelite um, people. But then you have the prophets, a whole section of the Old Testament called the prophets. And their primary function was not just to predict the Messiah who was coming, but it was to return the people of God back to the law of God so that they might in fact accomplish his purposes and be blessed, that they might in fact finish the work that God had started in them to be for all the nations. And so when you get to 2 Kings chapter 13, one of those prophets that was raised up was a prophet named Elisha. And Elisha um, had ministered in miracle power throughout Israel's history. And it comes to the point in his life where once again, Israel is going back, slipping and sliding, backsliding back into their apostasy. And Elisha is having to speak to this over the course of his life. But at the same time, God's merciful and is working miracles all along the way. So let's pick up the story here where we see that Elisha is at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, and teaching the Israelites how to finish what God himself has started in them. It says this, starting at verse 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now that was a common saying whenever someone was about to go the way of all the earth, that they, were, they know that they were about to pass away. They would know they were about to die. And so he was saying, hey, listen, I know you're about to die. I'm sad that you're um, about to go the way of all the earth. But additionally, at the same time, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, um, at that time, because of Israel's sin, the army or the great military force of Israel had been diminished during his father's time. And so much so that the surrounding armies were overwhelming and overpowering them. And he was also saddened by this. 
And it said, And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elijah laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elijah said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elijah died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. So what you see here is, if you can imagine this again, Israel is a mighty nation in God's power, but they're a small nation. And what you have surrounding them continually are the nations that come against them to oppose or oppress them. And by God's power and God's by, strength, by God's strength, they're able to do great miraculous feats, not only the miracles that Elisha worked in terms of raising people from the dead, but even in times of war. They're able to overcome the armies that otherwise in the natural should overwhelm them and should defeat them. That was God's miracle power working on their behalf to fulfill his purposes. But whatever we, whenever we see Israel fall into sin and get disconnected from God, God withdraws his hand, and then the thing that they were depending on in the past, that miracle power is not with them, and so they become defeated. That's the cycle of sin in everyone's life. When you're with God and obeying his commands, things go well with you. When you detach from God and begin to do things your own way, what you see are challenges and defeat and all types of difficulties that are invited into your life. Whether you try to blame God for it or not, they're invited into your life because of a separation from God, his commands, and his ways. But what we see is that Joel, um, Joash, the son of Joahaz, 
Ahaz was going to Elijah and saying, I don't want to live this way. Though my father blew it, I want to live in a different way and in a different place. I want to complete the purposes of God. I want to see, God, your victory come back to Israel, come back to your people, and for you to accomplish your purposes in my time in your land. And Elisha gives him very specific instruction. He says, take these arrows and shoot it out the window. And then take the arrows and strike the ground with the arrows. And a lot of times you look at that scripture and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Why is he telling him to strike the ground? Anybody read passages like this and you're like, Okay, well, the thing about it is that he was giving him once again a physical or object representation of that which was going on in his heart. He was saying, listen, if you trust me and you know that I'm the God of war and that I'm the one who's fighting on your behalf, take the arrows in your hand and strike the ground with it. Do it once, twice, and three times a lady, right? And then all of a sudden you'll see that God begins to break out on your behalf because you're once again associating your victories with his strength, your victories with his power, your victories with consecration to him. But what happens is, is that in the midst of him doing this object representation, this what's called a prophetic act of realigning himself with the Lord, he does just enough to get by. He strikes the ground and he's like, once, twice, that should be good. And then Elisha gets mad at him. And he says, listen, why did you only strike the ground three times? You should have done it five or six times, and then the victory that God had for you would be complete. Now, if I was that king, I would have immediately responded to Elijah, you didn't tell me how many times to strike the ground. I didn't know I was supposed to strike it more than three. Anybody would, would anybody else say that? But there was something going on in his heart. He wasn't speaking to the necessarily the number of times he struck the ground, but he was speaking to the posture of his heart. And it was doing barely enough or just enough to get by. Doing just enough to actually see God associated with his name and his people and his kingdom. And how often do we live that way? We do not consecrate ourselves fully to God, but we posture ourselves in a just enough attitude. So that the very things that God himself started in us during times of consecration aren't ever fully complete because we do just enough to get by. And when we look at the scripture, we see that just enough is the enemy of God's completed work in and through your life. Just enough is the enemy of God's completed work in and through your life. When times, for instance, of fasting and, um, um, fasting and consecration end, the temptation is to step back from the earnest pursuit of God that brought the breakthrough in the first place. Because you say, well, God, I consecrated myself for a moment. You answered my prayer, and that's good enough. How many people have ever led the, uh, felt that way before? Or how about this? In marriage, you had, a, you had a little bit of a beef, right? Or a little bit of a disagreement, and you did just enough to get by or get past that disagreement. You know what I'm talking about? It's sort of like, I just want to go to bed. I just want to not talk about this anymore, you know? So I'm going to do just enough in this conversation to appease my spouse so that we can go on with our day. Or how about this? In the workplace, has anybody done just enough to satisfy your boss? 
not gone the extra mile, not actually done anything that's actually, if you were the boss, you would want done, or the energy or the effort that you would want put behind your work by your employees. You did just enough to get by and then wonder why you're not being promoted, right? The just enough attitude is the enemy of all that God wants to do in you. But to complete the work that God wants to do in you, because we know that Philippians, Paul's prayer for the church was that God would complete the work that he started in them in Christ Jesus. That it's not enough that he would begin a work in you, but the justification is a one-time event where Jesus come begins to cover you. And because God is looking at you through the eyes of his son, you are justified in his sight. The rest of your life, however, is sanctification, where he's completing and working out your salvation with fear and trembling so that you might finish the work he started in you, a completing work. When we look at the Bible, he speaks about it on various fronts. Not that I just start a work in you, not that I do just enough for you, but I want all of you, I want you to persist and finish that which you've started. I want to finish that what I've started in you. There's several Bible references. Please write them down. They won't be on the screen. Whenever we talk about Paul and instructing the church in generosity, 2 Corinthians 8, 11, he was talking to the church and they wanted to give an offering to their brothers and sisters in need. And he says, so now in verse eight, chapter eight, verse 11, finish doing it, meaning the giving of the gift as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Meaning that you have a desire to be generous. You have a desire to help your brothers and sisters in need. Vis-a-vis, as an example, you have a desire to help with something like a clothing drive. Then actually take the clothes off the hanger and bring it to church. Don't just think it's a good idea, right? Rally yourself and say, I haven't worn that shirt in 10 years. It could probably benefit somebody other than me, right? You complete the work by actually doing something objectively rather than just thinking about it. He didn't just say that to the church in terms of their generosity. And Colossians 4.17, he was talking to a man named Archippus. You see at the, a lot of the, in a lot of the New Testament letters, there were greetings, initial greetings to the church, and then there were also end greetings where they were talking about the life of the church and saying, this is our interaction with one another and what we're pursuing together. And he spoke to a man named Archippus and he said this, very pointedly, and say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord, that you finish it. That it was, it was great when somebody laid hands on you. It was great when somebody prophesied something great over your life about all the great and mighty things that you were going to do for the Lord, Archippus. But now I'm charging you, finish the ministry that God's entrusted to you. It's not enough that you started it. It's not enough that you had a whole lot of hoopla and fair. It's like, woo, you're going to do something great for God. You've got to finish and complete the ministry that was entrusted to you. Every one of you have a ministry. And you want to reflect Paul's attitude at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, where he said, knowing in prison that he was about to be beheaded, he said, listen, I have already, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He'd been ministering around the pagan world for years, planting churches, raising up disciples, seeing people healed, delivered, saved. And then at the end of his life, he was able to say with confidence this, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Everybody's going to depart at some point, and he knew it was his time. 
He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. What race? The race marked out for him. Not for anybody else, but for him. You see, for each and every one of you, we're going to get to this in a moment, you have a race that God's marking out for you in the context of his kingdom purposes. And he says, you need to finish that race. You need to go all the way and finish what you start, not just have it as an idea that was good or you know, um, honorable at one point in time. You need to go through with it to the end. He said, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All who have loved his appearing, that's us, right? We're looking forward to his appearing. Not only has Jesus been crucified and raised from the dead, he's coming back again with recompense, with a reward in his hand for those who finish the race that he's entrusted to them. So you begin to ask yourself the question, if God started a work in me, I'm in the new year, I've made all my new year's resolutions, yes, we are going to commit to finishing them. We're not throwing them out just because we miss one or two days of good eating or one or two days of going to the gym. Come on, everybody said amen. Okay, you're going to finish the race, right? It's actually worthwhile. What kind of things do I need to think about? I'm going to give you some categories. What have you done just enough of that you need to persist in and complete? Do you need to continue to develop your ongoing patterns of consecration, meaning your prayer fasting and word life, that it wasn't just one point in the year, but that you're going to continue it, that you're going to continue to mark out and make room for God in your schedule, on a daily basis, in your life. Is there something that you've experienced a momentary victory in? It might be overcoming a particular type of sin. And God's like, listen, you started well, now finish it. You've cut yourself off from access to this sin. Now keep it cut off, right? Keep it cut off so that you don't go back to that slavery or go back to that bondage that he delivered you from. Continue to strike the ground. What about new patterns of relating with your spouse or children? How about new health choices or new levels of generosity and service? Do you need to keep striking the ground in the development of godly, accountable relationships? Meaning that you didn't just have one lunch with somebody who called themselves a Christian and think that your life is full now, but that you actually have relationship in an ongoing, accountable way with other believers who can provoke you to love and good deeds, as the scripture says, who can provoke you. You know what that means? It means prod you. It means to actually irritate you until it gets done. Woo! If I'm irritating you right now, I'm doing my job. (laughs) Doing my job. He says, what else? How about finishing a degree or a course of training for that which God has called you to do? Making a career move that will allow you to better pursue and fulfill the call of God on your life. Following through with outreach to your family, friendship group, neighbors, and or workplace. Engaging those around you with the gospel. Not just praying for them once and saying, well, they didn't turn. Well, I guess they're not that interested. I tried. One, two, three, I'm out. Right? But instead, continuing to strike the ground. 
Let me tell you, it took me years to come to Christ. Years! I was a knucklehead, and God was merciful with me. I had girlfriends, I had grandmas, I had all types of people throwing Gideon's Bibles at me. I had years before I bowed my knee and heart to Jesus. And if somebody had only struck the ground three times and said, well, I guess he's going to burn, you know what I mean? I wouldn't be here today. No, I'm being serious, right? Continuing to strike the ground so that the victory is made complete. I did not talk to the worship team about the song set this morning. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Do you notice the theme there? Finishing. His finished work in our life. Him finishing the race in us. We love you, Jesus. Why? Because you've done a finished work for us. These are the things he wants us to talk about. Or how about this? I'm just going to get practical. A new level. Do I need to finish a new level? I'm speaking to myself now. Of disconnecting from media and or your multiple devices to give you room for these things. Maybe you did that over the fast. You shut it down just a little bit. And yes, you are being pulled and every which twitch and way you start to like have a nervous tick, you know, wondering like what, who was posting what, you know, but you stayed away from it just for a moment in time so that you could allow God to speak to you. Can you not finish that race? Beth Moore actually said this. Many of you know that Beth Moore is a, a good uh, women's minister to, uh, teaching the Bible. She said, the giant step in the walk of faith is the one we take when we decide God no longer is a part of our lives he is our life. That's finishing the race. You see, that, that, that's a tectonic shift. Whenever you see that God and his consecration, he's not trying to be a part of your life. He's trying to be your life. Whereas Paul said in the Areopagus in Athens, he said, in him we live and move and have our being, that we'd actually live that way, consciously, intentionally, objectively. Elisha, though, was a miracle worker by the hand of God, going back to that scripture. We saw that, again, you could read it at another time, 2 Kings 4, 18 through 37. Amongst his other miracles, he raised a young boy from the dead, and we see that even after his death, his bones somehow, this curious thing, his bones somehow had power within it in God's strength you know, to raise a Moabite who wasn't even looking for God from the dead. And by returning to the bones... What can the bones represent? The word of God which he preached. Remember, he was a prophet trying to return the Israelites to the word and the law of God. By returning to the bones which he preached, resurrection can come to these areas of your life even if you've previously considered them dead. That's the good news of the gospel. There's resurrection power in those things that are valuable to God but which you consider dead. He can raise them to life if you return to his everlasting word. He said, practically, return to my word and I'll reorder your life according to it. Remember that old song? Order my steps through your word. No? Okay, that's fine. It's a psalm. <laughs> okay, it's a psalm. It is a psalm. And he says, God, order my steps through your word and I can come. And even when the marauding Moabite was not looking for it, he was impacted by coming into contact with the life of God. And that's good news. That's how I got saved too, right? I was not looking for him, but the word was preached to me over and over again. And though I was dead internally, I came to life in God because of his saving power. I came into contact with the life of God. And though I wasn't looking from him, he raised me to life just like this Moabite. 
and he will do the same thing in whatever area that we listed that you find dead in your life right now. The question, though, is how are you going to finish your part in God's unfolding story and purposes? How are you going to finish your part? Christ fulfilled his part. The question is, how are we going to fulfill ours? Ephesians 2.10, if any of you did the Bible study that we uh, uh, offered to you over the course of the fast, it was called In Christ Going Through the Book of Ephesians. And one of the ones that stood out to me most was, again, Ephesians 2.10, where he says, you are God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for you to do. And so regardless of whether or not you're satisfied, God may not be. And he says, strike the ground again. Strike the ground again and finish the work that I started in you. Finish the work that I started through you. Now, our best example for that is obviously Jesus himself. Christ's completed work was our example. Jesus and his completed work is why we come to worship today. And Jesus' atoning work on the cross was one that had to be completed in fulfillment of Scripture to fully satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. Because he persisted to the very end of his life, his finished work gives us full access to the forgiveness and friendship of God. Anybody think about that? It was his finished work, his completed work in all of his life. He didn't just live half of his life well, He poured out obedience to the end. John 19, verses 28 through 30, gives us a picture of him on the cross. And it said, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, in him hanging on the cross, knowing that all was now finished, to fulfill the scripture, to fulfill all that the Father had intended for him to fulfill in all righteousness, in all truth, showing that he was the Messiah who was prophesied to come and now had fulfilled everything that the God the Father had promised ahead of time. Ages past, hundreds of years, through various prophets at various, in various conditions at different times, to fulfill all those words. He said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That is the nature of Jesus. That is the nature of God. And I love it because he finished everything that he needed to do to fulfill the scripture was something that was challenging and did not tickle his fancy. You understand what I'm saying? A lot of times we gravitate to that which interests us or that which is life-giving to us. Well, Jesus actually gravitated to that which caused his death to fulfill all Scripture. And it said that as he finished the race that the Father had for him, he gave up his spirit. And that's the type of mentality that we need to adopt if we're going to not just start things in God but finish them. I think many of you are aware of The Darkest Hour, the movie that's coming out now about Winston Churchill. Anybody like The Bulldog of Britain? Okay, anybody like biographies? Okay, come on now. Okay, good. Okay, at least see the movie. It's important. Not the movie, but his life. And one of the things that Winston Churchill said, I like it, he's he and Yogi Berra. Anybody know who Yogi Berra is? Okay, the old baseball player. Okay, they always said these, like, trite, like, you know, little pithy quotes that were like, that's fun, but pointed. And he said this, if you're going through hell, 
keep going. <laughs> if you're going through hell to accomplish the purposes of God, keep going. This was in the middle of him leading England in the midst of their like overcoming the Nazi, Nazi Germany in World War II. They, they alone in all of Europe standing against the Germany invasion, right? And the force that was coming against them. He said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Don't just stop. If you feel like to accomplish that, I'm putting it in the context of God, that, that God is having you to do has you going through hell to get there. The good news is you don't have to stop in the middle of hell. You keep going. Jesus himself actually did what? He died and he preached to those who were in prison. And then he was resurrected from the dead three days later, according to that same word of God. He didn't just die and remain in prison. He kept going. Was it a pleasant thing for him to go and preach the, um, that word to those who had previously died in belief, looking for the Messiah to come? No, but he did it and he kept going. Same with us. And the attitude that we need to have and that we need to reflect is one that Winston Churchill, on the, the, uh, the, the time of his inauguration, if we could put up that picture, when it was his first speech as prime minister to the House of Commons, the 13th of May, 1940, he said this. He said, listen, I don't have a lot to offer, but I would say to the House, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. That's what he said in the middle of World War II. And I'm telling you, for our lost and dying world, there needs to be that same attitude for the kingdom. For a revival to come, there needs to be that same attitude. Victory at all costs. He's already purchased victory for us by his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Now it's up to his people to apprehend it. Victory at all costs. Victory through blood, toil, sweat inconveniencing ourselves, resisting the spirit of this world that drives us into comfort, that drives us into apathy, that drives us into complacency. He says, wake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He says, wake up and finish what it is that he started in you. It's necessary for the survival of humanity and mankind. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus now lives. Jesus now lives. Okay, that's, that's when you as a church can be like, yay. Okay, yay. Okay, yes. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus now lives. Continuing, continuing to do the same thing that Elisha in his prophetic act was encouraging Joash to do. You would have thought that after he rose from the dead, he would be tired and said, I've done my job. I'm done. But Jesus now lives, continuing to strike the ground in intercession for those who would come to the Father through him. Though his sacrifice was a complete one, he is active to this day in fighting for those who would live for him on a daily basis. You ever think about that? Jesus is still, after his resurrection from the dead, striking the ground for you. He's still striking the ground. Hebrews 7, 25 says it this way, and this is how we'll end. It says, consequently, talking about Jesus as our great high priest, as the one who not only died and sacrificed himself for our sins, but now lives forever as a high priest, 
as a high priest in the great courts of the Father, great courts of God. He said, consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. This is the ESV. I like how the NIV puts it. He says he's able to save completely. He's able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. Meaning that if you've started a work in God and have been discouraged and therefore been bumped off your course, the good news is you need to remember this complete salvation that he's purchased for you. He lives today. He's not dead. He lives today to continue the intercession for you. To say, you know what? Even if you've been discouraged, even if you've sinned, even, and remember we talked about last week, not just sins of commission, but sins of omission. Striking the ground only three times when he said to do it six or seven. He says, I live in intercession for you that I might save completely those who come to the Father through me. You know what that is? That's freedom. You know what that is? That's empowerment. You know what that is? That's daily encouragement that I'm going to win. Why? Because he's already won. He's already won, and therefore, he's able to save me completely, no matter what I think of myself, no matter what I feel about myself. He's able to save me completely because of his work on the cross and his continued intercession for me. He didn't just strike the ground three times. Hear this now. Sound familiar? Three times. How many days was he in the grave? Three days. He didn't just strike the ground three times and remain. He rose from the dead and therefore continues to strike the ground that the work he started in you, he might bring to completion. If we have the same attitude as him and we look to him in that way, the work that was begun in us, he will finish to his glory for his kingdom's sake in his name. Amen? All right, let's finish what we start. Worship team, come on up.